Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Hedge, a podcast from Scribehound, where we go in search of the people, places, traditions, and tales that shape Britain's rural landscape. I'm Patrick Arbrace, an author, an editor, and a journalist. For the best part of seven years, I edited Shooting Times magazine, and in 2021, I had a book out called In Search of One Last Song, about the people trying to save Britain's disappearing birds. In this podcast, we're going to head out into the countryside to talk to the people who make it the fascinating place it is. I want to talk to publicans and butchers and grey partridge keepers. In the coming months, we've got episodes on everything from native cattle to hedge laying. I think it's going to be a really interesting ride, so do come along. In this episode, we're going to be thinking about rural writing and what it actually means. What makes good rural writing? I guess you've got nature writing, rural writing or countryside writing, and then you've got field sports journalism. And there are definitely overlaps, but there are also big differences. And I want to think about why those differences exist. I'm going to head down to Hampshire to talk to Jonathan Young. Jonathan edited the field for almost three decades, and I think he probably knows better than anybody what makes a good piece on field sports. I'm then going to go and chat to John Mitchinson, the founding publisher at Unbound. I want to ask him, what do people actually want to read at the moment when it comes to the rural British landscape and everything that goes on there? And then lastly, I'm going to go and speak to Guy Adams. Guy Adams is a veteran on the features desk at the Daily Mail. He's also a scribehound writer. Do have a look at his stuff. He has been at the Daily Mail during a period when they started to focus a lot more on digital. And I want to know, you know, how is the media landscape going to change? And are things like Substack and Scribehound the future? Getting all the way down to Hampshire from London is never a particularly easy journey, especially at rush hour. But when I got there, Jonathan was just as I remember him, except that he swapped his Marlboro Light for a vape. He was sitting there in the in the kitchen at his farmhouse, smoking his vape. And I asked him something that I always meant to ask when we worked together, but, but I, I forgot, which is how did it all begin? How did Jonathan end up initially on Shooting Times magazine? And how did his interest in field sports begin before that? They're barking because my uh, local farrier is running some sheep on some of our land. Yeah, I grew up on the excess tree. And when I say grew up on the excess tree, the deeds from our house went down to low watermark. So you could pull the boats in on a running line and you could just go out on the river fishing and wildfowling. It was absolutely fantastic. I've only had one interview in my entire life and that was for shooting times. And then I had a very nice uh, lunch at the Savoy with Sir David English who said to me, would you like to edit the field? To which I replied, yes, please, Sir David. I joined in 1982. I was given three things which I was told I needed as a journalist on Shooting Times, which was an imperial typewriter, a bottle of famous grass and an ashtray. And in those days, they were very clever. They they gave you a title as assistant editor, which meant they could ask you to do absolutely anything. In those days, once you'd sent off the copy to the to the typesetters, there was this lapse in time where, so the courier went at four o'clock, and up after four o'clock, you could pretty much pull out the Marlboro lights and have whiskey. 
One of the things that I wanted to know from Jonathan was how the content that they ran in his day on Shooting Times, which he edited prior to the field, differed to the content that I ran in mine, if it differed at all. The news element on, on Shooting Times was very strong in those days. So you would be covering something at the weekend. It might be the British Open Sporting Championship or the Peterborough Hand Show, and you'd be armed with your penthouse camera. And then you would dash back, get in early on Monday. You'd then take your your black and white film to the in-house developers. Mm. They'd produce a contact sheet. You'd then run up the photographs, uh, write your copy, and then that would go on the 11 o'clock courier on Monday. Right. And then it would appear in the magazine on Thursday morning, which is pretty good. What Jonathan didn't know is that before I went down to see him, I managed to find an issue from 1982, a December 1982 issue, priced at 55 pence. Uh, it's got a very snowy picture on the front, a Springer Spaniel, and inside there is, I think, the first ever piece that Jonathan wrote for the magazine, which is about rough shooting on Isla. And I wanted to know how much of that trip he remembers. Uh, it was the most wonderful trip. The, the, the shooting quality was extraordinary. The wild game. I mean, we shot, and I know in the, I, I know we shot over thirty woodcock on that particular trip, as well as a heap of other stuff. And we were staying in a not terribly windproof caravan, and there were four of us and three Labradors. Jonathan's piece begins, and it's, it's very well written, actually. It begins, A party of grey lags hung in the air in greeting as we drove to the caravan that was to be our base for the week. And what really strikes me with that, apart from being well written, is how long these young journalists managed to spend out of the office writing about interesting things. I think, you know, when I was uh, on the magazine, even as editor, you know, I could get out for a day, maybe two days. I think I went to Finland once to hunt moose for three days and froze my nuts off. But we certainly couldn't get out for a week to spend uh, in a caravan anyway. Because, as I say, we were all called assistant editors we were expected to do reportage, both words and photos. So it wasn't like we had specific sub-editors who stayed at base while the, while the rest of the team went out and did the stuff. If you, if you had the inclination, even as a, as a 22-year-old, you could get out there and get the story and file the story. And that was extremely satisfying. Mm. And, the, and that was totally accepted. <laughs> One of the things that has always struck me when you look at Shooting Times archives and Field Magazine archives is that although the quality of photographs has got better in the sense that cameras have got better and printing has improved, the quality of printing has improved, I think there's a case to say that actually, you know, in the 70s and 80s probably, Field sports photography was brilliant. You know, I think then you had photographers who really knew what they were looking for, and I think they really knew what readers wanted to see. And I wanted to know from Jonathan, you know, how he feels field sports photography has changed in the past 20, 30 years, and how he tried to use photos most effectively to get the very best out of the words that his writers were submitting. 
what was interesting about shooting times then is that we most of the most of the pieces were long form, so they were around about nine hundred to a thousand words, and per page illustrations were m- minimal. And one of my jobs was we'd, the copy would come in, and then I'd ferret around in a filing cabinet to find a black and white image that was vaguely appropriate. And yes, I spent a, I spent a lot of money on photographs when I was editing the field, and I. I really admire the photographic art, but I think what what the photograph has to do is to enhance the story. If, if the photograph catches a particularly memorable retrieve or a particularly memorable shot or or someone scooping up a salmon, if it adds to the story, then I think that's very valuable. I suppose what I what I don't like is photographs of grinning faces, because I think, well, so what? If you don't know those people, is it of any interest to you whatsoever? And one of the things I did make sure when I when I took over the field is I said to all of my photographers, look at the back page of a newspaper, the sports page. Do you ever see a footballer sucking on an orange? And you never do. So it's a footballer is always doing something. Yes, he's yeah. kicking a ball yeah. or he's making yeah. a save. Although there were some greats that came before Jonathan, people like Tower Bird and other names that those who really delve back into the archives will be familiar with, I think it's probably fair to say that Jonathan was at shooting times anyway during its golden era in terms of writers. You were able to pay people sufficiently that they could do it professionally. I mean, somebody could go all the way up to Scotland as a freelancer and shoot grouse for a couple of days and you know the, the fee they were paid it wouldn't probably pay for their shooting but the the estate or the shoot would have them up there in order to promote the shoot and what they were paid would you know more than cover their expenses and you know it meant that they could basically just get on with it and what i wanted to know from jonathan you know was who did he think were the greats you know he was he sort of most excited to edit Lineup from when I joined included Goff Thomas on who wrote a weekly gun column. We had Colin Willock, who was Tan Gun, who was he was the producer of Survival, which is it, it, at its time it was the the planet Earth. We had Peter Moxon. Uh, we had Fred Taylor, Fred J. Taylor. We had Lee McNally, who was a professional stalker on on um, which what's this state called Easter Ross. And Arthur Oglesby, BB, there was still this breed out there called the sportsman naturalist. Uh, I'm not so, so sure such a breed exists in such plentiful numbers today. In fact, I'm fairly convinced it doesn't. I think at one point to be a member of the RSPB and to read Shooting Times wouldn't have been that odd at all. Actually, I think a former vice president of the RSPB held the record for the number of black grouse shot in a single day in Scotland. We've come a very long way since then. The person that I always think of when I'm thinking of conservationist shooters is probably Sir Peter Scott. Now, Sir Peter Scott, I think, would have been quite an old man when Jonathan started on shooting times, but certainly he would still have been around. He was absolutely charming i'd taken down my copy of uh, morning flight and wild chorus which he signed for me and 
he said, well, there's no one else around now, Jonathan. Let's talk about wildfowling. Um, Sir Peter was extraordinarily keen on wildfowling. I think those of you who've read any sort of sporting journalism or sporting writing will know that wildfowling often makes for the best stories. I don't know whether it's something about the places that wildfowling takes place out on the marsh. It's a very beautiful landscape often and the sky can be very beautiful. The wind even can be very beautiful in a, in a bleak way. I mean, I remember one night lying in bed, I think I was shooting the next day actually, I was at a farmhouse in East Lothian and I sort of rolled over to turn the light off. And as I did, I saw a book there, a collection of, an anthology of, of stories about wildfowling edited by Jonathan Young. I, I picked it up and I read a couple of them um, and it, it was really brilliant actually. I wanted to know from Jonathan why he thinks wildfowling makes for such good writing. Well, I'll talk about one of the pieces that's in that book and it's by uh, Hugh Fulkus. And it's a story of a widgeon that gets pricked and then it has a miserable existence until eventually the rats find it. So you wouldn't think of it no. as, a, as a classic, classic wildfire. Classic no. But what I liked about that book was the humanitarian aspect. One of the really interesting things, I think, if you look at shooting times from the 70s to the 80s to the 90s, is that wildfowling was sort of everything to shooting times readers. For many of them, it was all they did. And you still meet guys, I'm going to go and see some guys quite soon, actually, who said to me, guys on the Humber Estuary, who said to me, they've never shot a driven pheasant. They said, actually, they've hardly even seen pheasants. All they do is go out on the marsh. But that changed and people started to get involved in driven shooting a lot more. It became something that wasn't just for very wealthy people. It became sort of democratized. And I wanted to know from Jonathan if you can pinpoint when that happened or if people were aware of that happening or whether it just kind of you know, crept up on everybody. I think, I think there's a definite transition, a generational transition mm. from, from that sort of shooting and that sort of low key, but really interesting to driven yeah. stuff. But on the other hand, I still think you can find amongst the very keenest of all and, and really quite well-to-do people, there's still a strong interest in wildfowling and pigeon shooting. Writing about nature is having a real moment, but writing on the countryside, real countryside writing doesn't seem to be doing quite so well. So book publishers, you know, big book publishers like Faber, Bloomsbury, HarperCollins are you know, really doing very well financially out of publishing books about, you know, leaves and moss and snow and whatever it might be, but not the sort of thing that you know you can find at any farmhouse anywhere across the country, old books on pigeon shooting, gun dog training and so on. Um, and often those books were published by very mainstream publishers, which is an interesting thing. And I, I wanted to know from Jonathan why that's changed, whether that market's still there, whether people just actually don't want to be associated with field sports anymore or, or what it is. I think it's not that it's, 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 I just think it's become less normal. So when I was, when I grew up in Devon, the fact that I went and walked out my door with a gun over my slip to go wildfowling didn't attract comment. And the policeman that came round 
to give me my shotgun certificate when I was 13, had quite an in-depth conversation with me about ferreting. I just wonder whether it's, it's just the edging away from a rural to an urban society. I've got, I've got a ton of uh, cloth-covered books in, mm. in, in, in maroon and, and green in my library, written by people who had modest but interesting sporting experiences and careers. But yeah. I love them. I absolutely love But They're like a time capsule. It's funny how life goes. Just after I stopped editing Shooting Times, in fact, I think like the day after, I was at Soho Farmhouse doing an In Conversation With event with John Mitchinson about the first book I wrote. I really enjoyed the conversation. But afterwards at dinner, he said to me, well, what are you doing now? And I said, you know what? I've not actually got much of a plan. And by the time we had coffee, we decided that I could go out there and find interesting people in rural Britain who might write interesting books for Unbound. But when the brief came through, it said emphatically not nature writing. And I wanted to know why. And, you know, nature writing is very popular. So what does John think there is in terms of a gap in the market for the sort of things that he wants me to find? I went to his offices in London Bridge to ask him. I'm basically a writer and a publisher, and I alternate between those two things. Uh, the publishing that I do is Unbound, um, although I have worked for traditional publishing um, since, you know, for 30 years. Um, and I was a bookseller before I was a publisher. But Unbound is, uses crowdfunding. Um, but it's uh, really about trying to bring writers and readers closer together. Um, it struck, struck me that the commissioning process now in publishing is particularly that's dominated by such big kind of conglomerates that getting interesting books through is more and more difficult and actually going out and getting the support for a book in advance is a very noble and ancient way of trying to publish it was certainly what they did in the 18th century subscription in advance but what i really want to know from john because he's said it to me a few times now is what is the difference between nature writing and countryside writing because i think there's a lot of blurred lines between those two things but certainly there are some people who feel that nature writing is their thing and countryside writing isn't part of that and then there are people who very much don't want to be nature writers and feel like countryside writers and then you've got people who feel that actually they are just storytellers and they don't want anything to do with the whole thing the difference for me that i suppose my interest is because i live in the countryside and have done for uh, 30 years is I'm fascinated by the stories of the people who are actually physically engaged in work in the countryside and I think to some extent while I I mean let's be honest there are there's a there is a lot of nature writing which I love I'm a, I, I am and will defend to the hilt the work of Robert McFarlane I think he's a great writer but he is a writer and he happens to write about uh, walking and he happens to write about nature and landscape Underworld is not is not really nature no. writing at all so I mean for me a gra- another great writer about nature Roger Deakin I mean not a practitioner but Waterlog is just a it's just a brilliant bit of what and then on the other side there are you know they're kind of the the, the historians of the countryside which I think do an really important job um, Oliver Rackham being the, the one that always I always come to kind of the great the great yeah. history of woodland and I'm going right back to the to one of my favorite books which I still go back to which WG has Hoskins the making of the English landscape where that's kind of history and uh, and, and 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 nature and how I mean I suppose for me the really important thing is we live in a 
completely artificial environment. And while I'm as kind of, you know, romantically love the idea of rewilding as everybody does, and I'm also really fascinated in the ways in which we have over the centuries learned to live and work with nature. You know, I'm a, I've, I'm very, very small, small holder. I, I no longer have sheep, but I still have pigs and bees and chickens. And to me, it's the interaction with the interaction with landscape rather than this kind of slightly more escapist, isn't nature wonderful? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think understanding and watching and observing and, and that a lot of the people who know most about nature, I've, I've found through my experience, you know, if I talk to my local gamekeeper who is, who are often cast as the bad guy, kind of, they actually are much more acutely aware of what's going on in the environment than people who are just wearing Gore-Tex and wandering through it with their ordnance survey maps. I mean, I think most sensible people recognize that, that actually if, if you're going to have a, an, an intelligent relationship with nature, then you're, you're, you know, you, you have brutality, death, um, are all part of, are all part of the equation. And you mm. kind of have to, you have to figure out what you think. I mean, I am, you know, I'm, I'm clear about that the, the, you know, farming, uh, regenerative farming where, you know, you're, 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 you're giving back to the land and you're looking after your animals and you're trying to kill hum, you keeping them as humanely as possible. That to me seems like a very, very sensible route. I don't think anybody who's had anything to do with kind of the mass industrialized farming thinks it's either very, very good news for the animals, very good news for the planet, or actually in lots of cases, very good news for the people who are involved in it. Talking about bloodiness and brutality, some weeks before I went to see John, I went north, and when I was there, I stopped in to see Patrick Laurie. He had a pig hanging up in his shed. There was some cold weather coming in, and he decided that it was the right moment to slaughter the pig for Christmas. And I was delighted to hear just after I'd recorded this podcast that Patrick has uh, become a scribe hounder. It's a very interesting point, I think, that, look, I would love to read a novel written by a taxidermist in East Anglia or an eel fisherman or a thatcher. I'm sure there are thatchers and taxidermists out there who write very well, but it's hard to find them. You know, I've tried. And I wonder whether fiction actually represents the countryside in a more interesting way because, you know, if you're a good novelist, if you're a good writer of fiction, you can inhabit those roles, you know, you can bring those lives to life on the page. So the question really that I wanted to ask for John, one of the many questions of course, is, is whether fiction is a better way to represent the real countryside than non-fiction. I think it's a really interesting idea and I think clearly, you know, our relationship with the, with, with the countryside has been, you know, from the Romantics onwards in particular, through the great 19th century n novels of, you know, Hardy into Lawrence, um, that kind of presentation of rural life. Uh, fiction is an amazing, I and mean, you're right, I mean, you know, who could not, who, who can read Cider with Rosie and not just love it? I mean, what I would say is that the, the interesting thing in all of those books is it's always to do with people and landscape. Since we recorded the podcast on rural writing, it was announced officially that Richard Negus 
has signed a contract with Unbound uh, for a book on Hedgelair's view of the English countryside. And just as excitingly, about two days after that, um, Richard came on board as a Scribehound writer. I guess we could say that in some ways, subscribing to support a book in that very old-fashioned way that John has revived in a radical way is not unlike Scribehound, really. It's trying to bring writers and readers together, and it's trying to create a space where readers can see the sort of thing that they really want to see published. It's undeniable that print media across the board from newspapers to field sports magazines to i don't know magazines about trains are not doing as well as they did you know shooting times sold 60,000 copies a week in the 70s um it's now probably selling 10. i wanted to know you know why that's the case i think you know look i consume a lot of media on my phone and on my laptop and i really enjoy that but you know i think there are people who feel that print gives you a unique reading experience and you know i wanted to know whether jonathan as a you know, reasonably analog guy feels that way or otherwise so at the moment uh, you and i are surrounded by mini computers we've got uh, and we are being bombarded with stuff the whole time and it's quite addictive but that's a very different experience from picking up a good article in print with a glass of wine. And, uh, and you've got your terriers who, for one moment, haven't buggered off and they're actually sitting quite, quite happily by you. But that's a very relaxing experience. And I think one of the, one of the worries about the, 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 the decline of print media is that until the populace learns how to relax again... It's very, it's very difficult to get that back because there is, there is noise. But you can escape. And one of the reasons those, those, those articles, both in the field and the long-form articles in Shooting Times and the field, worked well, is because you can escape somewhere. You can, you can be sitting here and you can be on that marsh good. if the writing's good yeah. enough. print journalism is in decline. There's a lot of appetite for daily reads. So things like Substack is doing very well. Um, newsletters are doing very well. Drivehound as well is, is having a very, you know, objectively, it's having a very strong start. What I like about Scribehound is you can write pretty much whatever you like. And if people don't like it, well, then they, they don't click on to it. At the moment, I'm, I'm dwelling on a piece of whether or not to actually go into print about how ghastly mycelium terriers are at escaping. I like the attitude of the, of the, the contributors. They wouldn't describe themselves as experts. And I worked with people that were real authorities. You know, people like um, Arthur Oglesby on salmon fishing or Lee McNally on stalking or Peter Moxon on gun dogs. And they were such clever and wise countrymen that they realised there was so much more to learn. That I'm always wary of anyone who describes themselves as an expert. And they would talk about and write about very amusingly about days that went badly. I think that, I think that rings true of all of us who pursue field sports is that sometimes it goes quite well, and other times, and it can be down to a small detail. 
actually, it really doesn't work. I felt like saying to Jonathan that for me, it almost always goes badly, but I tend to enjoy it. Having spoken to Jonathan about magazines and the heyday of magazines and having spoken to John Mitchinson about what countryside writing means as opposed to nature writing, I felt it would be good to go and talk to somebody who thinks he might be the most disliked man in journalism. Uh, Guy Adams has been at the Daily Mail for a very long time and he's of course a scribe hand writer but he knows an awful lot about how rates for writing have changed. Um, you know, how do you actually make a living as a writer? And are platforms like Scribehound and like Substack going to give writers the ability to actually just get on and be writers again, rather than having to do lots of other things and only being able to focus on their writing for a little bit of time a week as a hobby, essentially? If you were to take a sort of straw poll of the world as uh, in, in terms of sort of people who use, say, t say Twitter, what would make you more unpopular? Would it be being a, a writer for the Daily Mail or would it be uh, being a field sports writer? And I think they're probably sort of neck and neck. And <laughs> so I, I get a sort of double bingo on that front. On my business card, it says I write features. In the Daily Mail, a feature, or in most newspapers, a feature is a kind of longer form article. My role tends to be when there's a story in the news on any particular week, I kind of go away and have a think about it and have a look at all the sort of all the aspects of that story that maybe aren't getting into the 400 word news stories that are in the paper every day, aren't getting into the two minute news bulletins on the telly and speak to all the people involved in the story, maybe even do the old fashioned thing of knocking on doors and try and come up with a, a story that first of all, will kind of for new, for readers who haven't necessarily been following the story incredibly closely all week, will will tell them everything they need to know but we'll also move it on a bit. I think one very interesting evolution in terms of print versus digital is that in the beginning, it was always a case of you had your print publication and then you would kind of populate the website after that. Whereas now quite a lot of publications are actually going kind of digital first and they then fill the pages of the magazine. I wanted to know how Guy's seen that change in his time. When it started, the internet started off, you you spent all day making a great web uh, newspaper, and then at midnight they'd take the contents of that newspaper and stick it on the internet. Whereas now a lot of newspapers, you get people, journalists get into the office in the morning and they'll look at you know what stuff's going well online, what what stories are people excited about online, what do we need to do with our sort of online offering later in the day, and then. Uh, they'll have a separate sort of team that comes in at five in the afternoon and goes, right, of all the stuff we've put on the website all day, what's going to run, what can we put in the paper tomorrow? How do we consume media differently? I mean, it used to be the case that people would buy lots of magazines. I even remember at school, everybody bought magazines. I probably read comics before that. You know, we still consume media, but we definitely don't consume it in the same way that we did. When I was a kid in the 1990s, um, I'd get a train. If you were about to get on a three-hour train journey, and it might be delayed or whatever, you'd have to go tooled up, and you know, you'd know you have to have something to do on that train journey. So you'd go to, you'd go to WH Smith's, 
and you would buy a newspaper, a magazine, and maybe a second magazine. And you think, have I got enough stuff to see me through this journey? And everyone on those trains. And I remember when I used to, when I started out in journalism, I'd be commuting to uh, the Telegraph's offices in Canary Wharf across London at sort of nine in the morning. And every single person on that train would be reading a newspaper or a magazine, or occasionally a book. They would, but they, you know, the consumption of uh, of journalism, it was something you needed to to consume to fill the time that you you know you were just bo- otherwise you'd be bored in. If you go on a train now, I reckon at least sixty or seventy percent of the people on that train will have nothing with them uh, to entertain them apart from a mobile telephone. But if you look at what they do, a lot of people will just. They, I've seen. I've sat. I get the train back to Wales from London every kind of Friday afternoon, and it's a couple of hours. Um, you see people who will will literally scroll through TikTok or other social media uh, sites, uh, Instagram, whatever, for two hours. The the other thing that's definitely going to change, I think, with all newspapers, including my own, and I think it will change much sooner than we think, is the idea that you will just produce good content and you'll get expensive journalists who you send to travel places and, you know, who cost a lot of money to run, that you get them. You know, we, we for example, have on the mail, we've got a tennis correspondent and he, he goes to every Grand Slam. He goes to Indian Wells. He'll go to Miami. He, the idea that you, you have a journalist on a decent salary who's a real expert, one of the top tennis writers in the country, and then they just write stuff and you give it away for free online. That era is, that's, that's going to end. So I don't think any newspaper will still be around, any quality, any newspaper of any sort of quality will still be around with a site that's completely free to access uh, in, in the way that Mail Online, for example, is now. Now, there might be bits of it that are free to access. You could, you know, and, and if you were, if you were, you could sort of put, because there's different sort of types of content. So, yeah, lots of people are interested in Kim Kardashian's latest uh, skincare range. Or you know a picture of some celebrities on a red carpet. You might still put that stuff out for free, but if your your, your quality content, your you know your big name writers, your the, the stuff that costs a lot of money, I think that stuff's going to go behind a paywall more and more. You know, and I think it's important for people to to realise that that good journalism isn't free. For if you're the Daily Mail, you can have a very successful website, and actually it makes a bit of money. But if you're a magazine that has kind of big, long, posh articles in it, how does that translate to the internet? And the answer is, it, it's very difficult to, to work out how to do that. If you're just relying on online advertising, if you're giving away content on a free-to-access website, you've got to have millions of, our, of people clicking on it to have a hope of generating significant amounts of money. It's very hard to make to, to write quality content and then... And then wash your face if you're relying on on online advertising. Understanding the economics of the modern publishing landscape is really important in terms of understanding why you see the pieces that you see in magazines. I mean, it used to be the case that you would write a lovely long form piece and people would subscribe to a magazine on the strength of that. Whereas now, you know, even in my own time, we probably ended up running many more pieces on the five best gun slips for a driven day or the best boots for woodland stalkers um, because it worked in tandem with advertising. So, you know, 
what you saw in magazines was dictated a bit by advertisers uh, and certainly to a far greater extent than it would have been in the past. I was interested to hear from Guy how rates have changed or actually not changed in, in his time. I mean, he's been around for longer than I have. To understand it, really, you have to go back 20 years or so. Uh, when I started out on Fleet Street, I was a young, wet-behind-the-ears gossip columnist on the Daily Telegraph. And I'm also, you know, I was keen on fishing and shooting and all the rest of it. And I started doing the odd freelance article for The Field magazine. At the start, it was it was just something that I was sort of interested in and a bit of another string to my bow and maybe a direction in different circumstances my career might have, my sort of main career might have gone in. But the um, at the time, uh, an article for the Field magazine would be about 1,800 words long and I would be paid for writing that 450 quid. You know, an article, a big article, properly researched for that sort of magazine, it's going to take you... It's a lot of work. And if you want to do it properly, it's probably three or four days work. If I was writing an article for the Field magazine today, I would have been paid £450 for 1,800 words. In other words, their going rate had not changed for 20 years. And the reason for that, they weren't paying, you know, their rates weren't bad because they wanted them to be bad. They were bad because of what's been happening in the media industry. So, you know, print sales have declined quite precipitously. So revenues from from subscriptions are are down a bit. Revenues from advertising are are down. And the whole and and the industry's been wrestling with how do you monetize online? For me, I mean I already had a full-time job and over time I basically came to the view that or if you know someone wants me to write about something and it's really dear to my heart and I think it's a great idea, from time to time I would do it. And if they wanted to send me off on a nice trip, so I went to, I remember once about 10 years ago, they said, oh, would you like to go to the Turks and Caicos and do some bone fishing and then write about it? And I thought, yeah, yeah, I would. I mean, I'd do that for free. Um, but if it was, you know, the sort of bread and butter journalism, I just, I couldn't really justify it. The great tragedy is that I think countryside writing has in the last 20 years actually lost a lot of people. There's been a lot of good young writers who've come along and you thought, you know, they've got something to say, they're interesting um, and they just couldn't make it. They haven't been able to make it work as a full-time kind of countryside writer. I think that's a terrible shame. And you know, if you if you care about the future of of the of countryside sports, and if you fe- care about sort of countryside politics and all the rest of it, then our community, uh, all communities, they need a sort of robust media to for, to to bring people together and also to to keep our opponents in check and to, you know, hold, uh, um, uh, to, 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 to scrutinise lawmakers, to do all of that stuff. So I think, you know, I, I really think countryside writing is important. It's important to support and, and sustain. So is it really viable anymore to actually be a countryside writer. I mean, when you think back, you did have these people who kind of kept themselves, I mean, it probably wasn't a luxurious existence, but they kept themselves going on writing pieces for Country Life, The Field, Horse and Hound. Is that possible anymore? Going back to the, and I'm talking about the vulgar business of money. So, you know, I 
I occasionally get asked, I wouldn't, if I was a, trying to make a living as a freelance journalist, I think, and I, I don't know if, it, I don't, I think you would need to charge at least 50p a word for your copy. Where if you're a writer and, and Substack has kind of shown this, you know, if you've got a, if you can get 500 people prepared to pay you a fiver a month, then, and that is a tiny audience, it's a niche audience. Actually, you know, writers who cover very particular fields can can make a living doing that and and i hope hopefully scribehound is will will provide a way for a sort of broader a broad community of, of countryside writers to, to get to, to to make countryside writing kind of a a, a de, you know proper career choice When I was at Shooting Times, I always struggled a bit to get Guy to write for us. He, he did a piece on the way that politicians use field sports to bash each other with, which was brilliant, and people still talk about it. But we certainly couldn't get him in regularly. And, you know, the Daily Mail pays well. So I wanted to know why he writes for Scribehound. What is it that he likes about the model? What works for me about the sort of Scribehound model is that I can write whatever I want. So I've done four pieces so far, and two of those pieces have, funnily enough, been kind of stories. Um, that, and, for this, and I mean sort of news stories that I wouldn't quite be able to get into the mail. They're, they're, they're a bit niche. One was about the RSPB, although, funnily enough, I, had, I did do a piece on the RSPB in the mail um, a few weeks earlier, but but it sort of it got more into the kind of nitty gritty of, of the internal politics of the RSPB. Um, the second was a piece about uh, the snaring ban in Wales and its impact on curlews. And again, I think it's a you know an important subject and a story that needed telling. If I'm tipped off about a really good kind of country sports story, and you know I might be able to get it if it's not big enough, you know, if it's not sort of something that's going to make a spread in the Daily Mail, I can try, and I, sometimes I'll try, I'll see if I can do a sort of small news piece in the mail. But but if if it's just a bit niche and, and not quite got the kind of mainstream appeal, but is tr- terrifically interesting to the sort of people who subscribe to Scribehound, I can just turn around and bang it out and it will be up there on the website within a couple of days uh, and you know an exclusive story, and, we, and I, I, we, there's been some great stuff on Scribehound recently. I, I can't remember who who wrote it, but there was um, I read a really fantastic piece. It, it was something to do with they, they'd certified there was you could certify you can certify woodland now as being green or sustainable or whatnot. And the people making the rules about that were saying, well, you're not going to get certified if you allow shooting in there because of some sort of theoretical idea that you might get a bit of lead ending up in a bit of wood or and and anyway it was a you know it was a it was a forensically reported story that had not been anywhere else and perhaps you know perhaps won't get anywhere else immediately but needs to be told needs to be out there and people need to know about it and be talking about it it's a really interesting thing i always used to think about people reading shooting times on a Sunday afternoon when the shops were closed and it was perhaps raining outside but I don't think we have free time anymore in the way that we once did and that really lends itself to the scribe hound model I tend to read 
I don't read every single piece that goes up there every single day, but I maybe read it three or four times a week. I'll read it in the morning. I'll read it when I'm out having coffee. I sometimes actually go to the pub and read a couple of pieces and I have a pint. I wanted to know how Guy reads Scribehounds and how he engages with the platform. The, the way I use it, I, I don't get on there every single morning and read that day's, and, and some people might, and you know, it's, it just depends on your lifestyle. But every two or three days, I might have, you know, half an hour, an hour to kill. And I will know I can get my, I, I normally use my iPad, actually, I'll get my iPad out. And I will re- catch up with the three or four scribe hand pieces that have um, been published in the last few days. Um, and I know there will be, I'm not, you're not going to, I'm not going to, you know, you're not going to love every piece because different people like different stuff. But I know that if, if it's been three or four days, I can go on to scribe hand and there'll be a couple of articles I really like um, and, and really make me think. Uh, and it, it will be a good way to fill that time. And the other, the other thing I'd say about, um, I'm sort of interested in Scribehand is sort of getting to know the readers a bit and and why they why people are choosing to subscribe and it's it's been quite interesting because everyone has a different reason and, and I hope over the sort of months to come that there'll be chances to to interact with readers a bit you know maybe uh, I might show my face at the game fair for the first time in a few years the idea of a community I think. It, it, you can start an online community, but actually, if it starts spilling over into real life, I think that'd be really nice. I learned so much from those conversations, not least that Jonathan Young had it pretty good when he was on Shooting Times with his Morbid Lights and his famous grouse. But all of those conversations left me with the sense that there will always be an appetite for good writing, whether it's in newspapers, magazines, or digitally. And I think what I learned when I was at Shooting Times more than anything was that writers produce their best stuff when you let them write about the things they want to write about. When I stood there with Patrick Laurie looking at that pig that was hanging up in his shed, he pointed at the pig and said, this is the sort of thing I want to write about. And that's what the team at Scribehound is trying to give writers the chance to do and they're trying to pay them properly for writing about the things they want to write about and that really matters. Good writing it can take you from one place to another you know when it's a long week and you're working hard and it's raining outside you read something good and it takes you to the marsh or it takes you to the hill or you know it even takes you to the local pub if that's what the piece happens to be about and that is important that's really important so i hope you continue to listen to the podcast and i really hope you continue to enjoy the pieces that are going up on scribehound over the coming months we've got some very interesting episodes i think the next episode of the podcast we are going to be talking about woodcock we're going to be talking about shooting woodcock over a visla i'm going to be talking to tim madams about the best way to cook woodcock and um you know it's become really chic to say oh i don't shoot woodcock i don't think we uh, ought to shoot woodcock anymore we're going to be exploring that you know is that right or is that just a, a sort of tedious thing to say when you've run out of anything else to say on a shoot day Thanks very much for listening to Beyond the Hedge and we can't wait to get out with you into the countryside in the months to come.
This episode of Beyond the Hedge was presented by me, Patrick Galbraith. It was edited by George Brown, and George Brown was the executive producer. Beyond the Hedge is a Scribehound production.